Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 11 of Charlie's GeekCast. My name is Charlie Niemeyer, and before we get into the comics today, I want to bring to your attention something that's pretty important to me. As you've no doubt heard by now, May 19th and 20th saw a few tornadoes touch down here in Oklahoma, with a huge one leveling a good portion of the town of Moore. Now, I found myself in a unique situation in that I'm trying to sell off most of my comics and wanting to help the tornado victims. So I've placed some comics on eBay with 100% of the proceeds to be donated to the Red Cross to help out. So if you would be interested in owning any Captain America comics from the late 90s um, and or would like to help the victims, I encourage you to check them out. The bidding on the Mark Wade run of Captain America ends on the 30th of May, and the bidding on the Dan Jurgis run will begin shortly thereafter, and of course will end about a week later. Uh, I will put the links in the show notes at www.charliesgeekcast.com, and I encourage you to check them out so we can get some money to help those who need it. So, uh, without further ado, I'll play a couple of promos, and uh, we'll get right into this week's issues. The Bronze Age of Comics. An era largely ignored as far as Superman goes, and an era that some consider to still be part of the Silver Age. Sure, a lot of people know about the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, where all the Kryptonite on Earth is turned to iron and Clark Kent goes from a newspaper reporter to a TV reporter. Then there are the Alan Moore stories, for the man who has everything and whatever happens to the man of tomorrow. But in an era that lasted 15 years, surely there's more to the Bronze Age than that, right? Well, my name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every other week, I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era of Superman in the Bronze Age. Featuring such stories as the return of Jonathan Kent, two meetings with the Amazing Spider-Man, the Phantom Zone miniseries, the enlarging of Krypton, and more. Plus, J. David Weeder also joins in to take a look at Superboy's Bronze Age adventures. So join in the fun at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. On June 3rd, return to the fight for freedom. In the name of adventure. All together now. It's not over yet. Chris Honeywell and Scott Gardner present the last chapter of the Marvel Comics Star Wars saga. All together now. With newly enhanced audio effects, THX and digital sound, and a few new surprises. Live the magic, experience the power, and feel the force one last time. On June 3rd, the last chapter in the Marvel Comics Star Wars saga, all together now. Only at 2TrueFreaks.com Okay, 
JLA number 8 had a cover date of August 1997 and an on-sale date of June 4, 1997, with a cover price of $1.95. features a cover by Howard Porter and John Dell that was colored by Liquid Graphics, and it basically tells you, kind of gives you an idea of who is the main villain. We've got Flash, Aquaman, and Wonder Woman all kinds of tied up by... Uh, I don't know if that you'd want to call it tentacle porn, but sort of. And Green Arrow standing on a table taking aim with his bow and arrow. Uh, and the only way you can see them is through a keyhole. And the caption says, under lock and key. That's right. The villain in this issue is the Mad Hatter. No, just kidding. Uh, let's go into the story. The title of this issue is Imaginary Stories, written by Grant Morrison, penciled by Oscar Jimenez, inked by Chip Wallace, colorist was Pat Garrahy, separations were done by Heroic Age, the letterer was Ken Lopez, and the editor was Ruben Diaz. On a cold, barren world under a red sun, a spacecraft has crashed to the ground. Inside is Green Lantern Tomar Ray, who, with his dying breath, passes his ring on to his successor. The planet is Krypton and Kal-El has just become the new Green Lantern of Sector 2813. On Earth, we see Aquaman swimming past the Statue of Liberty in a costume similar to the blue and white one he wore in his mid-80s miniseries. He's in New York, and the water level has risen, has risen high enough so that only the Statue of Liberty's forearm and the torch are visible above the surface. In Gotham City, Bruce Wayne is comforted by his wife, Selina, while he worries about Tim Drake and, his, and Bruce Jr. patrolling Gotham as the new Batman and Robin. At a U.S. government teleport terminal in D.C., current Green Arrow, Connor Hawk, prepares for his second trip to the Watchtower. After some small talk with the technician about Ollie, who the technician didn't know died, Arrow teleports mid-sentence, only to find that no one appears to be home. On Krypton, Kal-El confronts a self-assembling crystalline brain that is growing and transmitting some sort of a signal. He uses his ring to get rid of the creature, then gets hit on by Hantha, daughter of Zan-Ur. Back on the Watchtower, the Key tells Keyman 1 to administer the neural virus to Wonder Woman, while Green Arrow draws the attention of his other Keyman robots. While this goes on... The key monologues about how we only use 10% of our brains and that his psychochemicals have allowed him to tap into the unused 90% of his brain. And, with the help of the Justice League, he will be able to open doors into a whole new universe. Oh, and expanding his consciousness not only gives him extra senses, but also makes him talk to himself out loud. Elsewhere, Wonder Woman, powerless and wearing a groovy white outfit, is fighting a group of Nazi zombies. Fortunately, Indiana Jones, well, sorry, I mean Steve Trevor, is able to scare them off with a clockwise Buddhist swastika, which, by the way, is the symbol of life. Then he tosses some Eurasian maggots to attack them while Wonder Woman kicks in the door. Inside is Paula von Gunther, holding what appears to be the Earth in a bottle, which she says she plans to use to establish a new Reich that will expand to the stars. In the flood of New York, Aquaman brings enough food and supplies to survivors on a ship that just might be enough to get them to the mountains and dry land. All is well until they are attacked by manta raiders. 
On Krypton, Kal-El traces the signal from the brain to a planet in the neighboring sector called Earth, while Lara tries to get him to slow down. On the Watchtower, Green Arrow takes out another Keyman before the Key shows up and blasts him. Uh, fortunately, while the blast injures his left arm, or unfortunately, while the blast injures his left arm, it also destroys his quiver, as well as all of the arrows within it. In Gotham, the Batmobile has been wrecked, with flames erupting from the cockpit. Batman calls for Robin, but there's no answer. Bruce, listening in on the comms, realizes that something's wrong. When Batman finally finds Robin, he is shocked to find out that he is in the clutches of the Joker. And on the Watchtower, the Key instructs Keyman 3 to administer the virus to the Flash, while Green Arrow makes his way to the JLA Trophy Room to get his father's bow and trick arrows. Yeah, this is a this was a fun one to try to synopsize because it's it, it, I, I want to make sure you can tell which one's real world and which one's not but it, it, the the scenes change kind of seamlessly it's doesn't work as well anyway uh, as for my notes for this issue uh, let's see starting off with page three. This whole scene on Krypton is obviously reminiscent of Hal Jordan getting his ring from Abensur. Also, as was revealed in an installment of The Fabulous World of Krypton, in a Bronze Age issue of Superman, Tomar Ray really was the Green Lantern of the sector that Krypton was in. I don't believe the sector number was identified there, but it, this is still a nice little bit of continuity. Page 4. After swimming past Lady Liberty, Aquaman surfaces. And at this point, both the artwork and the sound effect of Pa make it appear that he's needing to catch his breath as if he could not breathe underwater. So, I mean, nothing's mentioned about that. It's just kind of interesting. Page 5. Now, there are several of those imaginary stories from the late Golden Age and early Silver Age that involve Dick Grayson becoming Batman 2 and Bruce's son taking over as the new Robin, or Robin 2, and the way you could tell was because they'd have their symbols, but right under them they'd have a Roman numeral 2, because that's what you do. Um, this seems to be just an updated take on that same theme, except that Tim Drake has replaced Dick, obviously. Uh, page 6. Connor's discomfort in joining the team is compounded by the fact that it appears that no one realizes that the original Green Arrow has died which has got to be tough when you know your father died as a hero and no one seems to know. Uh, not even that the hero side of him died. It's, it's got to be tough. Uh, page 12, Wonder Woman. Uh, this is basically Wonder Woman from her early 70s period where she had no powers and was learning judo. And Steve is so obviously Indiana Jones that the only thing missing is the whip. He's got the hat, the clothing, every, even the stubble. And on page 19, the setup for the Joker's entrance is actually pretty cool. Much cooler than I'm sure I was able to make it sound with a synopsis. It's, uh, I mean, when you see it, you can just hear like, well, it's actually set up pretty well. You can almost hear the and then the, the Joker laugh coming in. Oh, it's beautiful. And and what was cool is that Joker's jacket has a little Batman button, and it's got an X on the symbol, 
So that's kind of cool. Overall, I thought this was a pretty fun issue. It's got cool little Elseworld-type stories told for most of the heroes. Plus, Green Arrow on his own is on his own against one of the League's classic villains. The key is very expositional, but I like how Morrison uses the idea of the psychochemicals expanding his consciousness to explain why he is that way. The art isn't Porter and Dell, but Jimenez and Wallace work very well together, and they are very good fill-in artists. Unfortunately, after this two-part story, they won't be back. Um, some of the other artists they're going to have later on to do fill-ins, I'm not as much of a fan of, so I wish we could have seen these guys a little more. Uh, the only thing that doesn't mesh is how Superman is being given the virus. I know I've harped on this before about the, the new energy power of Superman, and that I've mentioned about the fact that you know they had several, st they had a few stories done before they even knew that Superman was having a change of powers over in the Superman books. So I, I almost don't want to harp on it here, but I'm going to, because I'm not sure how it would work, how it would work either way. Now, granted, at this point he's got he's got energy powers. Being a being of pure energy, I don't see how he's able to be given any kind of virus because it would just go through the energy or kind of sit in the contain in his containment suit. So I don't know how that would work. If he still had his regular powers, I don't know how it would get into his skin because it seems to be some kind of like a liquid they're getting, they're injecting them with. So I don't. So if he had his regular powers, I don't know how they would inject him because you know Kryptonians are invincible, invincible for the most part. And since he's energy, I don't know how they're doing that. Especially since poking through that um, energy suit would cause an energy leak, and that would be cause kinds of problems. Also, um. The Krypton that's used in here is pretty much the movie Krypton, and we'll see more of that in the next issue. It's not the post-crisis Krypton that John Byrne created. This is, I mean, it's still a... Well, see, John Byrne, he created a cold, barren world, but they didn't use white a lot. It just looked like dead ground, brown dirt, dead, brown, dry, brown dirt. Uh, but there was still, you know, buildings and structures and city-states and all this stuff. This is an ice wonderland and the the use of crystals is pretty abundant. So I don't know if this is a Morrison thing or if this is Jimenez or if this is something they decided to do just because that was the kind that kind of worked well with it or just they thought, hey, this is a dream, let's have some fun with Krypton or what. And at first, I was like, well, wouldn't Superman seeing this version of Krypton realize something's wrong? But if he's in this dream, he's still alive into adulthood on Krypton. And he's being given a Green Lantern ring. So I'm thinking that probably should have clued him in long before he knows the Krypton was messed up. Or it was different. So, But, pff, wow, that was quick. That's it for... Issue number eight, I'm going to take a quick break to go get a drink. Non-alcoholic, I assure you, probably just water. Uh, here's a couple promos to keep you occupied, and I'll be right back. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. 
You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us. I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. Or soon the mole man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And half mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You athletes can't change the way I can. Got me dying to those powerful cousins on Earth. I've been expecting you. For I am the Thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatots, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. You're just a muscular freak. Blind or hope. Stop! You must not end on the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain until it has been drained of all elemental life. So speak, Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witness the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. FFcast.libsyn.com You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.lipson.com. Every legend has a beginning. Okay, JLA number nine. It had a cover date of early September 1997 and an on-sale date of July 2nd, 1997. Uh, It had a cover price of $1.95. And again, the cover was by Howard Porter and John Dell. And this time... We've got the key holding up a key ring, and hanging on to the key ring, along with some giant keys, are Wonder Woman, Superman, Flash, and Batman. Actually, they're not hanging on; they're they're kind of their arms are tied together to make them look like human keys. It's not bad. The colors look awesome. Uh, it's Porter and Dell again. Uh, I really don't have anything bad to say about it. I just really don't have a lot of good to say. It's 
it's cool and kind of intriguing. It's just kind of... Eh. There's cooler covers later. Anyway, the title of this issue is Elseworlds. Written by Grant Morrison, penciled by Oscar Jimenez, inked by Chip Wallace and Hannibal Rodriguez. Colorist is Pat Garrahy. Separations were by Heroic Age. The letterer was Ken Lopez. And joining with this issue, the associate editor is Peter Tomasi, and the editor is Dan Raspler. This issue begins with a recap of the key's origins and how he used to work for Intergang and created the psychochemicals to open the doors of the untapped areas of the brain and how he fought the Justice League and they always beat him and therefore he put himself into a faked coma to allow the psychochemicals to forge a new and more powerful mind which by the way would make you know which explains what he was doing in the a couple of issues ago being a coma patient in San Francisco then he explains that he realizes that with the JLA always winning he will use that to his advantage. Once the JLA realize that they're just dreaming and wake up, the accompanying psychoelectric surge will give him the energy he needs to succeed with his plan to open a doorway into the negative zone, which is a zone he somehow recently discovered. Uh, in Keystone City, Wally West uses the ring given to him by the dying new god Fastback to access the speed force so that he can protect the city as the Flash. Unfortunately, in the five years that he's been the Flash, he's had to steal, or he's had to deal with a little bit of Speed Force energy leaking into the real world at noon each day, giving everyone on Earth super speed for a short time. In Gotham, Bruce and Selina arrive on the scene in full costume in the Bat Tank, while the Joker carries out his threat to shoot Robin in five-minute intervals until Bruce arrives. After Joker shoots Robin once in each leg, the Bat Tank captures Joker in a net, and Bruce threatens to electrify it. By the time the guy I'm going to call Bat Bruce can get to him, Joker reveals that he's wearing a tactical nuclear weapon on his chest, and the timer is currently at about two seconds. But before it can go off, emerald constructs of a hammer and screwdriver and some keys deactivate the bomb before the Joker finds himself trapped in the Phantom Zone as Kal-El and Bat Bruce meet for the first time. Meanwhile, Green Arrow is getting attacked by another Keyman. He pulls out the explosive arrow just in time to see that it only has about four seconds left. So he throws it at the Keyman, and this damages the robot, but not enough to disable it. After a boxing glove arrow to the chest has no real effect, and the handcuff arrow misses his foot, Arrow fires his last arrow and misses. But before the Keyman can blast our hero, the arrow comes back and hits the Keyman from behind. See, that final arrow was the boomerang arrow, and it always comes back. Meanwhile, Wonder Woman is confronting Von Gunther when she suddenly finds herself in the skies over the flooded New York, which is a problem since she can't fly. Down below, Wakwa? Down below, Aquaman and the others are still trying to fight off the Manta Raiders. While Aquaman is busy taking down one raider from attacking two other people, another is about to attack him from behind, but fortunately Wonder Woman is able to use it to break her fall. At this point, both heroes realize that they're in some kind of an illusion, but they still haven't woken up yet. In the Watchtower, the Key realizes that he's close to success, as a door to the negative zone begins to form. On the plus side for us anyway, the Flash has awakened due to his super speed metabolism burning the virus out of his body. 
Unfortunately, due to the key's extra senses, he's able to use his blaster gun to trip up the speedster as he begins the five-second countdown to entering the gateway. In Gotham, Kal-El explains why he's in Gotham while Bat Bruce listens to his body's signals. See, in part of Grant Morrison's 90s Batman is the greatest of everything shtick, we learn that Batman has trained himself to play to pay close attention to signals from his body, and while he appears to be a fit man in his 60s, his body signals actually fit the profile of a man much younger and most likely unconscious. He also figures that his antibodies are fighting off the infection, which is why he no longer seems to be that worried about the safety of his son or anything else going on in Gotham right now. Well, not this fake Gotham. Suddenly, a gateway appears before them that looks actually very similar to the one that the key is about to use to the negative zone. Entering through the gate, the heroes meet up with Aquaman and Wonder Woman before they are confronted by Weaponier 500 from the planet Quard. After Bat Bruce points out that Quard is in the antimatter universe, and that his presence in the positive matter universe would actually destroy them all, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Green Lantern change back to their normal selves. However, they all wake up before Batman realizes that that's not a good idea. With the gate now fully materialized, the Flash is not able to move fast enough for some reason, and the key prepares to enter the gate. But before he can, he's struck in the face by the, by the boxing glove arrow and collapses. Next up, we have three different epilogues that count down. Well, actually, we have two epilogues and a prologue. Epilogue 2. Uh, basically, what happens here is Green, Lan Green Arrow is officially welcomed as the newest member of the JLA, and they consider this little takedown of the key to be his uh, test. In the... Well, this, it's technically the second epilogue, but it's called epi Epilogue 1. It's very confusing. In a familiar hospital in San Francisco, Superman explains to the doctor that the key has been confined in a perpetually branching fractal maze that should keep him busy until they can come up with a more permanent solution. On the plus side, he's the key appears to be kind of happy. And then the prologue. Fast forward to one month later and we're in a satellite that can not be seen by normal beings, although apparently NASA's picked it up. And in this satellite, seven shadowy figures activate duplicates of the JLA members, except that all of the symbols on their costumes have been replaced with skulls. This is the Revenge Squad, and it's been activated, and they're on their way to Earth. To be continued in Part 1 of The Rock of Ages. Oh... Uh, my notes on this issue, um, we're going to start on page 4. The different origin for the Flash here is actually pretty cool, and I would, wouldn't mind seeing it expanded upon. Uh, although technically, I guess it kind of will be in a way. See, if you look at the, if you've ever read this, basically, he opens the, Wally West opens the ring that was given him by Fastback, which I'm not even sure is a real new god. And it shoots out this silver metallic looks like goop that form fits all around Wally even gives him the little hat like Jake Garrick wears and he's the Flash well a little bit beyond this issue Mark Wade and Brian Augustin who are who at that time are the current writers of the Flash comic take a year long break uh, they go and work on a an actual book called the uh, 
the life history or the life story of the Flash, and in that, and also prepare for the their next big storyline in the Flash. During that year off, Grant Morrison and Mark Millar uh, take uh, take over and do some some of their own Flash stories. Well, one of their first stories involves the Flash getting injured, and he ends up creating. He actually ends up using speed force energy to create his own suit. So technically, that part actually comes into real continuity. Granted, the difference is that, well, if, at first it's yellow crackling energy, and then eventually he f- is able to form it into basically his normal Wally West Flash costume, except the white eyes are gone. Uh, but yeah, other than that, um, it doesn't look like it's much different, but the suit is indeed Speed Force Energy, and that stays with Wally all the way to the end of his run. Uh, and I believe after Barry's rebirth, he he eventually gets Speed Force Energy that becomes his suit as well during the rebirth. rebirth. And so that that's an idea that sticks with the Flash for quite a long time after this. Um, pages 5 through 6. Uh, this part of the Gotham scene gave me a Dark Knight Returns vibe. It, none of it was actually taken straight from Dark Knight Returns. It's just, you know, you've got the fires, the police all in combat gear. Ro- uh, Robin's been shot twice. Joker knows who Batman really, who the real Batman really is. And the threats and Batman's threat to, you know, electrify the net and then the nuclear bomb idea it just, for some reason it was just a really dark version of Gotham that just gave me a Dark Knight vi- Dark Knight Returns vibe um, page 7 again we're going with visuals from the Superman movies as Kal-El traps Joker in the Phantom Zone but it's really just a flat rectangle similar to the way Zod, Ursa, and Nan were trapped at the beginning of Superman the movie and escaped from in Superman 2. Um, that's really all the, uh, the notes I had. Um, overall, this was another fun issue. I really like this two-part story. It's it's really fun. I, I kind of like... I don't like it used all the time, but I kind of like the alternate reality kind of things. Just for a glimpse, it's kind of cool to see another idea with the same characters, as long as it doesn't, you know, really affect the main continuity. Um... Unfortunately, though, the the ending seemed kind of rushed. We had all this set up, and then all of a sudden, boom, it's over. I find it hard to believe that the Flash wasn't fast enough to get to the key, but Green Arrow was fast enough to load, aim, and fire a boomerang arrow, plus the boomerang arrow was able to get to the, the key. I, it just doesn't seem to add up. Then again, this is a team book, and that sort of thing happens sometimes just to explain just to give the other heroes a chance to do something so I don't know um, but I have to admit though that watching Green Arrow take down the key man the key man with basically four trick arrows which I'm not sure where they came where four of them came from because all the pictures only showed three the boxing glove the explosive one and the handcuff so I'm not sure about the boomerang one but Maybe that was an art mistake, or Morrison wrote himself into a corner. Um, but the fact that Green Arrow takes them all down with basically four trick arrows is 
pretty cool, especially since the whole time he's got little caption boxes cursing his father for making these arrows in the first place. I mean, the, the, you got to remember, Connor Hawk's only ever used regular arrows. Just pointed, tipped ones. So, after years of that, having to try to aim a boxing glove at somebody has got to be kind of irritating. Especially when you don't know how all of them use, like the explosive arrow. He's really lucky that didn't blow up in his bat, in his uh, quiver. Uh, the art, however, is still just as good as last time. Uh, the crazy looks on the Revenge Squad duplicates on the last page are really kind of creepy. They've all got a kind of Joker-esque smile as they're flying down, but they look like the Justice League. It, it looks really creepy. And that's pretty much going to wrap things up for this episode. Next time, the show's going to be crossing over with Superman and the Bronze Age to provide you with a month's worth of commentaries looking at the four Christopher Reeve Superman movies. Next week, if you go over to Superman and the Bronze Age, I'll be watching Superman the Movie with Andy and Michael Leyland of Hate Kids Comics with some cameos by other Leylands. And then here, on this on this show, in just two weeks, I'll be watching Superman 2, hopefully with a guest. I hope you come back for that. Uh, make sure you check out Superman and the Bronze Age to see Superman 1. And uh, I'll talk to you then. This has been an episode of Charlie's GeekCast, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. The show's website is www.charliesgeekcast.com, where you'll find notes and images for each episode. Please feel free to leave a comment there or email the show at charliesgeekcast at gmail.com and I'll read them on the air. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes. I also have another show called Superman of the Bronze Age where I cover Superman comics published between 1970 and 1986. You can find that at www.supermanofthebronzeage.com. Charlie's Geekcast is an I Don't Have a Fake Company name production. All images and music used are copyright their respective copyright holders. Thank you for listening. And God bless.